You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Rick Vina. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. Section 6. Chapter 7. On the Trail. Three hours later, about the time when the War Council rose, after completing its plans, a sudden shift of the wind blew the poison gas out to sea, just when it appeared certain that it would reach the capital of the nation. The southern half of Virginia had been swept over. Operators, telegraph and telephone, staying at their posts, had sent in constant messages that had terminated with an abruptness which told of the tragic sequel. Yet, at that distance from its source, the intensity of the gas had been to some extent dissipated. Poisonous beyond any gas known, so deadly as to make hydrocyanic gas innocuous in comparison. Still, as it was swept northward on the wings of the wind, there had been an increasing number of non-fatal casualties. The most northerly point reached by the gas was Richmond, and here some fifty percent of those stricken had suffered paralysis instead of death. But a new element had been injected into the situation. Even the heroic courage shown by the populace in the beginning had had its limits. The morning after the news of the invisible death's advent was made public, mobs had gathered in all the large cities of the East, demanding surrender. The submerged elements of crime and disorder had come to the surface at last. Committees were formed with the avowed object of yielding to the invisible emperor and averting further disaster. In Washington, a city of the dead, half the members of Congress and the senators had gathered in the ruined capital to debate the situation. There were rumors of an impending march on the White House, of a coup d'etat. The action of the government was prompt. Five hundred loyalists were enrolled, armed, and posted round the White House. Every avenue of approach was commanded by machine guns. Meanwhile, the news was spread by radio that the headquarters of the Invisible Emperor had been located, and that a strong bombing squadron was being dispatched to destroy it. The entire fleet was to follow, and it was confidently anticipated that within a little while the terror would be at an end. Those at the White House were less sanguine. There was none but realized the diabolical strength of their antagonists. Everything depends upon the outcome of the next forty-eight hours, and everything depends on you, Rennell, said Secretary Norris to Dick, as he stood beside his plane. Behind him, his flight of a dozen airships was drawn up. Find them, added the Secretary. Cover Abaco Island with the black gas, and the Navy and the Marines will wipe up the mess that you leave behind you. God help you and all of us, Rennell. 
he gripped Dick's hand and turned away. Dick was very sober-minded as he climbed into his cockpit. He knew to the full how much depended upon himself and Luke Evans. Already the shouts of the insurgents were to be heard at the ends of the barriers, commanded by the machine guns, and patrolled by the enlisted volunteers. Negro mobs were building counter-barricades of their own, with rubble from the fallen edifices. Civil war might be postponed for eight and forty hours, but after that, unless there was news of victory, the whole structure of civilization would be smashed irreparably. It was up to Dick and Luke Evans, and they had assumed such a responsibility as rarely falls to the lot of man in a war. Dick was to lead the flight in a two-seater Barwell plane. This was one of the latest types, and had been hurriedly adapted to the purpose for which it was to be used. Dick himself occupied the rear seat with its dual controls, and the gun in its armored casing. In front sat old Luke Evans, in charge of the black gas projector. His famous camera box, containing a minute quantity of gas in slow combustion, and projecting the black searchlight, had been built into the plane. In the rack beside him were a number of the black gas bombs, each of which, dropped to earth, would release enough gas to cover a considerable area with darkness. Both Luke and Dick wore respirators filled with charcoal and sodium thiosulfate, and beside Dick a cage containing three guinea pigs rested. These little rodents were so sensitive to atmospheric changes that a quantity of hydrocyanic acid too minute to affect a man would produce instantaneous death on them. From its hiding place off the Virginia coast, the American fleet was steaming hotly southward toward Abaco Island, cruisers, destroyers, submarines. That Abaco was British territory had simply not been considered in this crisis of history. The twelve airships that followed Dick's contained enough bombs to put the headquarters of the Invisible Empire out of business for good. The naval guns would complete the same business. All day, Dick and Luke Evans flew southwestward. At first glance, everything appeared normal. The catastrophe that had fallen upon the land was visible only in the shape of the lines of tiny figures, extending for miles, that choked all the roads radiating out of the principal cities. It was only when they were over the southern portion of Virginia that the ravages of deadly gas became apparent. Flying low, Dick could see the fields strewn with the bodies of dead cattle. Here and there, at the doors of farmhouses, the inmates could be seen, lying together in gruesome heaps, caught and killed instantaneously as they attempted flight. Here, too, were figures on the roads, but they were figures of dead men and women. They strewed the roads for miles, 
lying as they had been trapped, men, women, children, horses, mules, and dogs. The spectacle was an appalling one. Dick set his jaws grimly. He was thinking that the council had let von Kettler escape. He was thinking of Fredegonde, but he would not let himself think of her. She deserved no more pity than the rest of the murderous crew. Over the Carolinas, the conditions were still more appalling. Here, deadly gas had struck with all its concentrated power. A city materialized out of the blue distance, a factory town with all chimneys spiring upward into the blue, a section of tall buildings intersected by canyon-like streets, around it a rim of trim houses, bungalows, indicative of prosperity and comfort, and it was a city of the dead. For everywhere around it, on all the roads, the dead lay piled on top of one another. For miles, all the inhabitants, rich and poor, businessmen, factory hands, negroes, there had been a mad rush as the fatal gas drove onward upon its lethal way, and all the fugitives had been overwhelmed simultaneously. Here were golf links, with little groups strewn on the grass and fairways. Here, at one of the holes, four men, their putters still in their hands, crouched in death. Here was the wreckage of a train that had collided with a string of freight cars at an untended switch, and from the shattered windows the heads and bodies of the dead protruded in serried ranks. Dick looked back. His flight was driving on behind him. He guessed their feelings. They had sworn, as he had sworn, that none of them would return without stamping out that abomination from the earth forever. He signaled to the flight to rise, and zoomed upward to twelve thousand feet. He did not want to look upon any more of those horrors. At that height, the peaceful landscape lay extended underneath, in a checkerboard of farms and woodlands. One could pretend that it was all a vile dream. He avoided Charleston, and winged out above the Atlantic, striking a straight course along the coast toward the Bahamas. The shores of Georgia vanished in the west. Dick began to breathe more freely. His mind shook off its weight of horror. Only the blue sea and the blue sky were visible. The aftermath of the gale remained in the shape of a strong head breeze and white crests below. Dick glanced at the guinea pigs. They were busily gnawing their cabbage and carrots. The gas had evidently been entirely dissipated by the wind. Toward sunset, the low, jutting foreland of Canaveral on the east coast of Florida came into view. Dick shifted course a little. Three hours more should see them over Abaco. His flight had explicit instructions. As soon as the black gas had rendered visible the headquarters of the invisible emperor, 
they were to circle above, dropping their bombs. When these were exhausted, the machine guns would come into play. There was to be no attention paid to signals of surrender. They were to wipe out the headquarters, to kill every living thing that showed itself, and the Navy and the Marines would mop up anything left over. The sun went down in a blaze of gold and crimson. Night fell. The moon began to climb the east. The black sea stretching beneath was as empty as on the day when it was created. Nothing in the shape of navigation appeared. Two hours, three hours, and old Evans turned round in his cockpit and pointed. On the horizon, a black thread was beginning to stretch against the sky. It was Abaco Island and the Bahama Group. They were nearly at their destination. An hour more, perhaps two hours, and the deadly menace that threatened America might be removed forever. Dick breathed a silent prayer for success. They were over Abaco, a long, flat island, seventy miles or so in extreme length, and fairly wide, covered with a dense growth of tropical brush and forest, with here and there open spaces, near the seacoast an occasional farmhouse. Dick dropped to five thousand, to three, to one. The moon made the whole land underneath as bright as day. There were no evidence of destruction by the hurricane. The farmhouses stood substantial and well-roofed. If death had struck Abaco Island, it had been the work of man, not nature. Dick zoomed almost to his ceiling, until, in the brilliant moonlight, he could see Abaco Island from side to side. For the most part, it was heavily wooded, with mahogany and lignum vitae. Toward the central portion there was open land, but there was not the least sign of any construction work. Again he swooped, indicating to his flight to follow him. At a thousand feet he examined the open district intently. Here, if anywhere upon the island, the invisible emperor had his headquarters. Was it conceivable that a gas factory, hangars, ammunition depots could exist here invisibly when he could look straight down upon the ground? Dick's heart sank. The hideous fear came to him that Graves had been mistaken, that he had come on a wild goose chase. This could not be the place. It was quite incredible. Again and again he circled, studying the ground beneath. Now he could see that the tough grass and undergrowth marked curious geometrical patterns. Here, for example, was an oblong of bare earth around which the vegetation grew, and it was obviously the work of man. Here were four squares of bare ground set side by side, with thin strips of vegetation growing between them. Then of a sudden Dick knew. 
those squares and parallelograms of bare ground indicated the foundations of buildings. He was looking down on the very site of the invisible emperor's stronghold. He shouted and pointed downward. Luke Evans looked round and nodded. He understood. He patted the camera box with a grim smile on his old face. End of Chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Magnetic Trap Upon those squares and oblongs of bare earth, incredible as it seemed, rose the structures of the invisible empire, themselves both invisible and transparent, so that one looked straight down through them, and saw only the ground beneath them. Every interior floor and girder must have been treated with the gas. They had been cunning. They must have discovered some permanent means of charging paint with the shadow-breaking gas, so that the buildings would remain invisible for months and years instead of hours. But they had not been cunning enough. It had not occurred to them that the foundations would still be visible underneath, for the simple reason that grass does not grow without sunlight. Dick saw old Luke Evans nodding and pointing downward. The old man picked up his end of the speaking tube, but Dick ignored the gesture. He signaled to his flight to rise, and zoomed up, circling and studying the land beneath. That oblong was evidently the central building. Those four squares probably housed airplanes, and each would hold half a dozen. That elliptical building might contain a dirigible. That round patch was probably the gas factory. Now Dick could see more patches of bare ground, extending in the direction of the sea. He gunned his ship and followed the gap among the trees to the ocean, a few miles distant. Yes, there were more evidence of activity here. Beside the water, in what looked like a deep, natural harbor, was what seemed to be the foundations of a dock. Perhaps even vessels of war floated on the phosphorescent Bahama Sea. He circled back, his flock wheeling like a flight of birds and following him. He signaled to them to scatter. They had certainly been observed. At any moment, a hail of lead might assail them invisibly out of the air. They must get to work quickly. But had they understood the significance of those bare patches? Dick saw Luke Evans still fidgeting impatiently with his end of the speaking tube, and picked it up. I'm thinking, Captain Rennell, we've got no time to lose if we want to keep the upper hand of those devils, called the old man. Yes, you're right, Dick answered. Lay a trail of gas bombs all around those hangars and buildings, enough to hold them dark for some time, and keep a bomb or two in reserve. Luke Evans shouted back. The plane was again above the structures. The old man dropped a bomb over the side, and Dick zoomed again, his flight 
wheeling up behind him. Higher and higher, banking and going round in a succession of tight spirals, Dick flew. Every moment he expected the blow to fall. As he rose, Luke Evans dropped bomb after bomb. A thousand feet beneath, the flight was taking up positions, hovering with the helicopters, looking up to Dick for the signal, and waiting. Then, from beneath, the cloud of black gas began to rise as Luke Evans dropped his bombs. It filled the lower spaces of the sky, blotting out the land in impenetrable darkness. That darkness, above which Dick and his flight were soaring, rose like a solid wall, built by some prehistoric race that aimed to fling a tower into the heavens. And then the miracle. Dick gasped in sheer delight as he realized that he had made no mistake. At first, all he could see was a number of crisscrossing phosphorescent lines that appeared shimmering through the blackness underneath. They ran luminously here and there, forming no particular pattern. Much like the figures on the radium dial of a watch, when first they come into wavering visibility at night. Then the lines began to intersect one another, to assume geometric patterns and curves, and bit by bit they took meaning and significance. And suddenly the whole invisible stronghold lay revealed upon the ground beneath, a shining, dazzling play of weaving light. Buildings and hangars stood out, clearly revealed, the rounded vault of a dirigible hangar, and the shining ribbon of a road that ran through a pitch-dark tarmac, and was evidently constructed from some gas-impregnated materials. On this tarmac was a flight of shining airplanes, ready to take off. There were the odd, ovoid figures of the aviators, in their silken overalls. More figures appeared, running out from the buildings. It was clear that the sudden raid had taken them all by surprise. Luke Evans yelled and pointed, We've got them now, sir! Dick heard above the whine of the helicopter engine. We've... But of a sudden the old man's voice died away, though his mouth was still moving. Dick leaned out of his cockpit and fired a single red very light, the signal for the attack, and from each plane of his flight, beneath him, a bomb slid from its rack and went hurtling down upon the gang below, while the airplanes circled and hovered, each taking up its station. Dick was too late. By a whole minute he had missed his chance. He realized that immediately, for before the red light had flared from his pistol, the hostile planes were in the air. He had flown too low and given the alarm. It meant a fight now, instead of a mad dog destruction, and Dick did not underestimate the power of the enemy. But he felt a thrill of furious satisfaction at the prospect of battle. From every plane the bombs were falling, 
underneath ruin and destruction and leaping flames and yet darkness save for the phosphorescent outlines of the buildings and the lines of these were broken converging into strange criss-crosses of luminosity as the beams fell in shapeless heaps dark fire sweeping through the headquarters of the invisible emperor a veritable hell for those below a taste of the hell that they had made for others then a strange phenomenon obtruded itself upon dick's notice nothing was audible the bombs were falling but they were falling silently no sound came up from beneath and except for the throbbing of his engine dick would have thought it had stopped he could no longer hear it that terrific holocaust of death and destruction was inaudible skimming the upper reach of the air high above that wall of darkness dick saw old luke evans pick up his end of the speaking tube and mechanically followed suit he could see the old man's lips moving but he heard nothing and now another phenomenon was borne in on his notice his flight were perhaps five hundred feet beneath him hovering a little above the barrage of black gas but they were converging oddly and there was no sight of the airplanes that dick had just seen taking off from the invisible tarmac dick fired two very lights as a signal to his flight to scatter what were they doing bunching together like a flock of sheep when at any moment the enemy planes might come swooping in riddling them with bullets he thrust the stick forward and then realized that his controls had gone dead he thought for a moment that a wire had snapped but the stick responded perfectly to his hand only it had no longer control over his plane he kicked right rudder and the plane remained motionless he pushed home the soaring lever to neutralize the helicopter and the plane still soared then he noticed that the needle of his earth inductor compass indicator was oscillating madly and realized that it was not his plane that was at fault underneath him his flight seemed to be milling wildly as the ships turned in every direction of the compass but not for long they were nosing in until the whole flight resembled an enormous airplane engine with twelve radial points corresponding to their propellers and the noses pointing symmetrically inward like a herd of game yarding in winter time and now the true significance came home to dick a vertical line of magnetic force an invisible mast had been shot upward from the ground the airplanes were moored to it by their noses as effectively as if they had been fastened with steel wires and he too was struggling against that magnetic force that was slowly drawing him despite his utmost efforts to a fixed position 
five hundred feet above his flight. For a few moments, by feeding his engine gas to the limit, Dick thought he might have a chance of escaping. Her nose a fixed point, Dick whirled round and round in a dizzy maze, attempting to break that invisible mooring chain. Then suddenly the engine went dead. He was trapped helplessly. He saw old Evans gesticulating wildly in the front cockpit. The old man hoisted himself, leaned over the cowling, gibbered in Dick's ear. The silent engine had ceased to throb, and the old man's shouts were simply not translated into sound. Suddenly the flight beneath jerked downward, just as a flag jerks when it is hauled down a pole. They vanished into the dark cloud beneath. At the same time there came a jerk that dropped Dick's plane a hundred feet and flung him violently against the rim of the cockpit. Another followed. By drops of a hundred feet at a time, Dick was being hauled down into the darkness underneath him. It rushed up at him. One moment he was suspended upon the rim of it, seeing the moon and stars above him. The next he had been plunged into utter blackness blackness more intense than anything that could be conceived. Soundless blackness, that was the added horror of it. Blackness of Luke Evans's contriving, but nonetheless fearful on that account. And yet, as Dick was jerked slowly downward, slowly, a pale visibility began to diffuse itself underneath. The black cloud was beginning to roll away, the luminous lines began to fade, and in place of them appeared little leaping tongues of fire. In front of him, Dick saw Luke Evans's form begin to pattern itself upon the darkness. He saw the form move sidewise, and caught at Luke's arm as he was about to hurl another gas bomb. No, he shouted, and heard no sound come from his lips. Luke understood. He seemed to be replacing the bomb in the rack. Beneath them now, as they were jerked downward, were fantastic swirls of black mist, and at the bottom a pit of fire that was slowly coming into visibility. Dick uttered a cry of horror. Five hundred feet below his plane he saw the dim forms of his flight, still bunched together, noses almost touching, and they were dropping straight into that flaming furnace of ruin underneath, which was growing clearer every instant. Down, jerk by jerk, down, the black cloud was fast dispersing from the ground. The flight were hardly a thousand feet above the fire. Down, a long jerk, that one. Once more, the flames leaped up hungrily about the doomed airships. Cries of mad horror broke from Dick's lips as he witnessed the destruction of ships and men. He could see almost clearly now the twelve ships 
still retaining their nose-to-nose -nose formation, were in the very heart of the fire. Spurts of exploding gasoline thrust their white tongues upward. There was only one consolation. For the doomed men, death must have come practically instantaneously. From where he hung, Dick could feel the fierce heat of the flames below. In front of him, old Luke Evans sat in his cockpit like one petrified. He was feebly fumbling at his camera box, as if he had some idea of using it, and had forgotten that it was fixed to the plane. But the old man seemed temporarily to have lost his wits. Rushing flames surrounded the burning airships, reducing them to a solid, welded mass of incandescent metal. Dick looked down, waiting for the next jerk that would summon him to join his men. At the moment, he was not conscious of either fear or horror, only intense rage against the murderers, and regret that he could never bring back the news of victory. The cloud had almost dissipated. In place of the phosphorescence, electric lights had appeared, making the ground beneath perfectly visible. Dick could see a number of men grouped together at the entrance to a large building, part of which had been wrecked by a bomb, though there were no evidences of fire. Other structures had been dismantled and knocked about, but what remained of them had not been charred by fire. Evidently they had been fireproofed. Perhaps the gas itself was incombustible. Only in the middle of the tarmac, where the remnants of the airplanes blazed, was there any sign of fire. There were three machines resembling dynamos, placed one at each corner of the tarmac, equidistant from the central holocaust. A half-dozen men were grouped about each of them, and by the light from the huge reflector over each, Dick saw that they were whirring busily. At the time, it did not occur to him that these were the machines that were sending out the electrical force that had held the airplanes powerless. But as he looked, his mind, still a turmoil of hate and hopeless anger, he saw one of the three machines cease whirring. The group about it dispersed, the light above went out, and now his plane, as if drawn by the power of the two remaining machines, began to move jerkily again, not down toward the burning wreckage, but sidewise away from it. Straight out toward the side of the tarmac it moved, jerked downward diagonally, until it rested only a few feet above the ground. Then suddenly Dick felt the plane quiver, as if released from the power of the force that had held it. It nosed down and crashed, rolled over amid the wreckage of a shattered wing. The concussion shot Dick from the cockpit, clear of the smashed machine. He landed upon his head and went out instantly. End of chapter 8
End of section six.